Thank you so much. Good morning. One of the beauties of being able to work verse by verse through the scriptures is that it gives us the opportunity to develop a combination of depth as well as breadth to our Christian experience. And so that's what we do on Sunday mornings where we work verse by verse through books of the Bible primarily. And what we want to do is to continue now in this study in the book of James by turning now to the second chapter of James, where in verse 1 down to verse 7, we're going to plunge into a little mini-analysis of this whole matter of the impartiality of God and how that comes out and how it plays out in the way in which we relate to other people. And so in chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, what James is now going to do for you and me is he's going to continue to develop a biblical ethic that we need to be able to establish in our relationship with other people based upon who God is. Reading now in this second chapter, beginning with verse 1, you and I find these words. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Now are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So it's very clear that James is now addressing an issue that was facing the early church in the time period, and he's going to offer a counterbalance to the way in which the culture has gone about uh, establishing who and what is of highest value. So we're going to be looking again now into biblical ethics this morning as we plunge into the second chapter now of the book of James and looking to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers are coming into your presence as the days become warmer and as the summer begins to open itself up to us. We're asking that we can look very carefully in the way in which, because of these verses, we relate to other people based upon our relationship to you. We need to be able to take a spiritual inventory to examine the heart carefully, to make certain that there is no partiality that's found within our souls. Because we've got a God who is sovereignly impartial in these matters. So thank you that you have reached into humanity, that you have led those who are rich and those who are poor into the born-again experience, 
based upon the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And we're asking in these minutes together as we go deep and wide with your word that we look for ways of bridging, moving from the text to the heart and from the heart into everyday practical living decisions. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wills. As again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus. Him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Joe Engo is a Los Angeles-based writer, and he's written frequently for the New York Times and other He tells of an experience he once had aboard a Los Angeles bus. Fascinating. He writes, Considering the large crowd inside, the lack of voices startled me. Only a rustle of newspapers and the groaning diesel engine broke the silence. Several well-dressed men stood in the aisle, so I assumed all seats were taken. But as I moved to the rear, I spotted an empty aisle seat on a double bench and wondered to myself, why is it unoccupied? The young man next to the window was breathing heavily. His face was covered with what appeared to be fibroid tumors. His long, filthy, matted hair and tattered clothing also made him unappealing. He was obviously homeless, and it was easy to guess why. He sat with shoulders hunched and eyes fixed through the window. Nearly paralyzed by pity, I gave silent thanks that my young daughter wasn't with me, asking her inevitable questions about him in a none-too-discreet voice. But it was because of my daughter that I finally sat down the kind of man that I wanted my daughter's father to be, sits in a bus next to someone whose only crime is, in this case, extreme ugliness. And I can't pretend that I relaxed. My left shoulder and arm scrunched involuntarily. He continued to stare out the window without even acknowledging my presence. Now, the bus made one more stop before entering the freeway. Several people boarded. it. An elderly woman walked toward the rear. I waited for anyone else to offer her a seat. None did. So I stood and motioned to her. When suddenly I heard her say, No, I don't want to sit there next to him. She said, with no concern for who might hear. I believe that we are living in a society that longs for somebody to show society how to live. How to be able to live in the light of all the challenges and the injustices of this world. I believe what this society needs more than the cry of social justice is biblical ethics. Biblical ethics that guide the believer in particular 
to be able to demonstrate to the rest of society how we are to live before God and how we are to treat fellow humans. James in the New Testament is rooted in the book of Leviticus as well as the book of Proverbs in your Older Testament. And here you and I are going to find a biblical ethic for believers as to the way in which we go about relating to other people that the rest of society might be prone to marginalize. Internally in the gathered community here, and externally as the scattered community begins to penetrate the various settings that God places in at work, in the streets, the neighborhoods, and beyond. Now, what you find when you're looking at this bulletin insert to track down some thoughts with me this morning is that God's distinctive characteristics include his impartiality. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, you and I are told that our great, mighty, awesome God is one who, quote, is not partial and takes no bribe, unquote. And because of that fact of who God is, God then delivers the goods of a biblical ethic to his people, where in that powerful chapter, Leviticus chapter 19, that offers paragraph after paragraph of biblical ethics, God challenges his people with these words, you shall not be partial, quote, unquote. Now, because of our sinful nature, our natural tendency is toward partiality, towards hanging out, relating to, and investing in relationships based upon a partial leaning towards a certain person or a certain group. The reality is some people are partial toward the poor, some people are partial toward the rich, But God demonstrates an impartiality reaching into the soul of the rich man like a a Nicodemus or the poor person like out in the streets as he would make his way to Jerusalem and minister to all simultaneously. What I want to do with you as we now take Joe Engel's story and relate it to modern day living is to draw three significant expectations that God has for believers with the way in which we go about living in a society that tends to marginalize. Now the first is your starting point expectation. It's found in verse 1. We're going to put it like this. The number one, as impartial believers... Note with me the faith that we are to hold, verse 1. He starts off once again with a my brother's approach. James does this whenever he wants to introduce a new theme for you and me to process. By saying my brothers, he has now put my brothers in the emphatic position in the original language. He's got something important to say. comes first. When he says, my brothers, he's informing me, and he's informing you that what he's about to say is personal. He's calling you family, so to speak. When he uses my in regards to that, he is including himself in this. There is a common concern on the family of faith that he wants to draw out as he now introduces a new social biblical ethic to consider. 
But notice furthermore how it reads. My brothers, show no partiality. Now, the word partiality here comes from a Greek word. I've listed it in our outlines, in the anglicized form. It means literally lifting up someone's face. Judging, in a sense, by appearance. Dealing with externals at the expense of the internals. Now, this is critically important to understand. While we look at the outward appearance, as described in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God looks at the heart. In a society with reality-based programming galore, and more of a superficial approach towards relationships extensive, what God is now introducing to a highly partial world based upon our sinful nature, is an impartial God who has sent his Son into this world to not only relate to the Nicodemuses in John chapter 3, but also to sit at the table with what the Pharisees described as tax collectors on quote-unquote sinners. Jesus, then, was not concerned with the outward appearance as much as with the internal reality. Isaiah himself wrote in chapter 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so showing partiality is lifting up someone's face. But showing no partiality is to accept the fact that there is a heart behind that face. And the believer wants to bring out the heart in a society that overlooks the heart and simply emphasizes the face. Peter Foster was a Royal Air Force pilot during World War II. Cream of the crop among the English when the pilots would walk down the streets, all eyes turned. They recognized them. It was World War II. His biographer informs us that for 57 consecutive nights, the Germans bombed the city of London. Each evening, 1,500 bombers pounded that city. Now, the Royal Air Force pilots, like Foster, flew small hurricanes and spitfires against the mass of German bombers. But the biographer informs us that these fighter planes had a design flaw, which caused the cockpit to burst into flames when the engine was hit with enemy fire. And the pilot could eject, but you see, in one or two seconds required, the heat would literally melt the features of the face. Downed pilots would often undergo 20 up to 40 facial surgeries for the sake of refashioning the face. And Foster is one of these pilots. And as the day for his release from the hospital approached, 
He became very anxious about being accepted by family and friends, knowing that so many of those pilots had become reclusives throughout Great Britain. Appearance was not the issue. Acceptance was the issue now in his heart. His girlfriend assured him that nothing had changed except a few millimeters thickness of skin. She told him that she loved him, not his facial membrane. And she convinced him, and they were married before Peter left the hospital. And Peter said, quote, she became my mirror. She gave me a new sense of reality about myself. Even now, regardless of how I feel, when I look at her, she gives me a warm and loving smile that says to me, you're real, and I love you. Now, here in James, the Christian community has this tremendous opportunity to go against the sinful grain. The sinful grain in this so-called culture of tolerance is to show partiality. Ponder with me this culture of so-called tolerance. And the tolerance there is really a matter of intolerance. But here, James is saying, my brothers show no partiality. And we're bringing a biblical ethic in now to the way in which we relate to people. Partiality, lifting up someone's face while in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And so now, to be a cutting-edge congregation in a culture that is partial towards those that value what they value and appear as they value, the believer cuts into all of this. And using Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus Christ himself predicted eight centuries prior to be rejected even because of the fact, among other things, his appearance was despised. Here James now says to me, with regard to that one who is promised, read on. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So now you and I, we look very carefully at this one who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we process very carefully his life his teachings, his death, his resurrection, you take the sum total of all who Christ is and all that Christ did and wrap it around that phrase as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then you ponder how he sits with the so-called quote-unquote sinners. And he engages with the Zacchaeuses of this world that other people were partially against. And here Jesus now penetrates where others will not go, but then he penetrates the heart of a Gary Highlander as well, 
who entered into this world sinful by nature and partial against God. And God in his sovereign grace breaks in and destroys that leaning by putting faith into that soul. Look very carefully, and you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And you ponder in the Old Testament how the first time the Lord of glory, that phrase is utilized, is in Exodus chapter 16. Manna is coming down from heaven. The people have been grumbling in the wilderness. And yet God, despite the fact that he could be partial against them because of their grumblings, is merciful toward them and produces manna from above. You reach a point in Exodus where there is Moses at the tabernacle and the glory of God envelops that setting only to be transferred in 1 Kings chapter 8 to the point where Solomon is beholding the glory of the Lord as it's now descended upon the temple itself. All of that, by the way, is just simply a precursor towards that great moment where in John chapter 114, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? Glory. You got it. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is what happens here. When you embrace the fact that by nature, this culture that supposedly embraces tolerance at the same time has this grain towards being partial. James, through the working of the Holy Spirit, challenges the believing community in a very family-oriented approach by starting with my brother's Show no partiality, in other words, the lifting up of someone's face, judging merely by the basis of appearance, as you hold the faith where, not in self, not in church, in our Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's that comma, and you ponder it, and you process it. He's the Lord of glory. In your Old Testament, the word for glory, kavod in the Hebrew, meant heavy which means you don't take Jesus lightly. You see. Now when you bring this in to the various relationships that God has you in and out of, you're bringing glory in when you show no impartiality. But all of this is tied to the faith you have. Do you see it in verse 1? The faith. You're bringing the faith in your Lord into the relationships that God's got before you this week. Peter Jones tells of visiting Jamestown. Have you ever been there? He says, Our family boarded authentic reproductions of the three ships that made the crossing. The smallest vessel, the Discovery, displaced about 20 tons of water, measured 50 feet, two and a quarter inches from stern to stern. We were shocked to find it did not have a full headroom, and the rough below was partitioned for four bunks. Yet the discovery brought over 12 passengers and a crew of nine. In our tour group, somebody spoke up and said, quote, You certainly would have to believe in something, wouldn't you, to come across in this thing, quote, unquote. And Peter turned in front of the group said, not something. 
someone and use that as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Bring your faith into all the various conversations of the culture and get people to rethink their views towards why things are the way things are. The impartial believer, you note with me, the faith that we are to hold, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the kavod of God. And now you're ready with me for this second expectation. Once you've established the faith element, that you are saved by grace through faith, not on the basis of works, and now you bring this transportable faith into all the various relationships you've got, acquaintances, the ins and outs of people, here's your second expectation, that as impartial believers, know with me the distinctions that you and I, we, are to reject. He sets up now an example for us to process. Now, if a a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, exhibit A, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, exhibit B, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Question. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's process this. Look very carefully at what's unfolding in verses 2 through 4. In the original language, the Greek, this is one long conditional sentence. Just one. He can't put a period to it. And he sets up before us now an example in verses 2 and 3. And this example produces a contrast. Rich man, poor man. The rich man, appearance, gold ring. It means literally in the Greek, gold-fingered, for you James Bond fans. Gold-fingered. But furthermore, fine clothing. Okay? In other words, he is setting up now an example based upon appearance. But for the sake of contrast, a poor man, And shabby clothing also comes in. And the word he chose for shabby is the very same word that you and I would have found back in verse 21 of the prior chapter, where it had read, therefore put away all filthiness. So now this person comes in less than ideal, and he's coming in simultaneously with the rich men. And how will the ushers respond? Well, Look at verse 3. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, and you'll notice with me now, the rich man is only given the opportunity to, number one, sit, and second of all, sit in a good place. Um, But, you see, for the poor person we described here, He is offered to stand as one of his options. And if he is to sit, you can sit down at my feet. And this was typical of the synagogue approach in that time period, you see. 
then there is a question that's posed here. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The word distinctions that you see at the beginning of verse 4, have you spotted it? Comes from the very same word found in James chapter 1 verse 6 for doubting. But let any him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. What he is saying here is this. If you are making distinctions, and as a result of making distinctions, you are partial towards one group of people to the exclusion of another group of people, you are demonstrating doubt. The result of doubting is distinguishing. And you are going against the God who we noticed in Deuteronomy as well as Leviticus is impartial and challenges you and challenges me to show no partiality. What fascinates us is that some people are partial towards the rich, but others are partial toward the poor. The reality is with God, he is partial toward neither. But in his sovereign grace, he reaches in and he touches the heart of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Penetrates the soul of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Utilizes the Joseph of Arimathea. I've given three illustrations of rich people that God has impacted. And bear in mind that it is very difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus used the illustration of the needle. But simultaneously, Jesus drew poor people, and they walked with him along the roads. And in the early church, we're fascinated with the fact that there were many poor that initially, initially became part of the community of faith. Why? In an article in Christianity Today from 1995, page 52, Monica Helwig helps us to understand that. We asked the why question. Because at that point, the poor knew they were in urgent need. The poor knew that they're only, they're only their dependence on God and on powerful people, but also their interdependence with one another would get them through. The poor rested their security not on things but on people. The poor, even today, have no exaggerated sense of their own importance. The poor expect little from competition, much from cooperation. And the poor can more readily distinguish between necessity and luxury. And so now, you look at that and you process what's going on. And his conclusion in verse 4, it's a question. Have you not then made distinctions? Behind the word distinction is doubt. Doubt produces distinctions, moving you further and further away from the God who is impartial. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And when we start to become judgmental, what we are really doing is replacing the sovereign judge of the universe with our own partial judgmentalism in relationship to other people. Ken Crockett gets that 
driving to the office this morning, I noticed a woman driving 65 miles per hour with her face up next to her rearview mirror, putting on her eyeliner. And I looked away, and next thing you know, she was halfway in my lane and still putting on her makeup. I see I'm a man, and I don't scare easily. But she scared me half to death. So much so, I dropped my electric shaver. which knocked the donut out of my other hand. In all the confusion of trying to straighten out the car using my knees against the steering wheel, it knocked my cell phone away from my ear, which fell into the coffee between my legs, ruined the phone, soaked my pants, disconnected an important call, all because of this crazy woman driver. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We've got something to be able to offer the culture of partiality, a biblical ethic rooted in the nature of God. Revealed in his grace where he sent Jesus Christ into the world who mingled with both the rich and the poor. Died for both. Uses both. Partial toward neither. Are we? Here's your third expectation. That is impartial believers note with me the questions that we are to address. And they they come at us. The questions now, thirdly, we are to address. Look beginning with verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Do you see that word, listen? It comes from the Greek word that we get acoustics from. Akusara. Acoustics. In other words, he wants you and he wants me now to develop good acoustics. Good acoustics in listening and processing God's word. The very same root word that we found a few weeks ago in verse 19 of the first chapter. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And what did we notice there? There was one quick followed by two slows. And the only quick had to do with acoustics. Be quick to acousticize, to develop such acoustics that you've got ears and a heart to process truth. You'll notice that the good acoustics came first, the one quick, followed by the two slows. Slow to speak, Not slow to think, but slow to speak, leading then slow to anger. Reverse that, and if you find yourself slow to hear, slow on the acoustics, but you are quick to speak, it's going to lead to being quick to anger. So now what he has brilliantly done is to reverse the natural tendencies of humanity with these challenges. 
picks up on the acoustics again for you and me to utilize in our relationships in this world. And he says, I've got an acoustical matter for you to process. Involves the word listen. But just so you know, I care. In verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved brothers. This would be great parenting. What's unfolding here? Now he takes you to God's sovereign grace. Question. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Now it's not to say that this is God's grace is exclusively for the poor. I've just given you the examples of Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Lydia. We could add the centurion and others. But what we see here is an example by which James is offering a a realignment. Because this church that he is writing to seems to be veering off in a certain direction. And now he's got to get them back on track. Now you've got to ask yourself, where am I partial? Where do I find myself needing a realignment? Because I tend to move in this particular direction to the exclusion of those people in that direction. And am I bringing grace into the conversations of life? He moves from the theological question, you see, in verse 5, to a judicial one and a financial one. But you have dishonored the poor man, verse 6. Another question emerges. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? and the ones who drag you into court. He's getting now for these people to rethink where they're coming from and then brings it all together back to God. Are they, in verse 7, not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And now he comes full circle, grace, faith, ties it all together, poses these questions, and gets you and me to begin to rethink this whole issue of Where am I partial? And am I developing the spiritual discipline of becoming impartial in the world in which I live in, where they claim to be tolerant, but all the biases and all the preferences lean in a certain direction? So Joe Engel writes... The bus made just one more stop before entering the freeway. Several people bought it. An elderly woman walked toward the rear. I waited for anyone else to offer a seat, and none did. And so I stood and motioned to her, when suddenly I heard her say, No, I don't want to sit there next to him. She said with no concern for who might hear. And there's Jesus. And he's sitting with Zacchaeus. And he's sitting with the sinners. And he dies for people like you and people like me. Let's stand together. There is a rich theology informing this strong biblical ethic on the way in which we relate to people. 
Father, this is something that this culture needs to see in action. Biblical ethics rooted in your nature, worked out in parenting, worked out at work, worked out in relationships, worked out in the way in which we look out over those that others would overlook. But while people overlook the soul, you look into the soul. And because of this, Father, you provide the believer not merely with the opportunity to look on the outside, but the capacity now to be able to discern what is taking place on the inside by your Spirit. Use these three expectations now to transport the way in which we live, the way in which we parent, the way in which we relate. No partialities as we serve the sovereign God. We praise you in Jesus' name.